If you have a financial question for Pega Bruce, you can call this number 24-7-1888-6 Advice. You can also email your questions to your money at wealthenhancement.com. You can also today call or text our studio line 651-461-9226. Now, here's Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor Peg Webb and founder of Wealth Enhancement Group and Financial Advisor Bruce Helmer. Good morning. Hi, Peg. Thank you, Denny Long. Appreciate the introduction. Peg, as always, good to be with you. Um, Today, we're going to talk about something, Peg, and uh, I'm sure this comes up a lot with you in client meetings. I've been getting this question, gosh, for years and years now, and and it's the, the question we're going to talk about is some variation of What's the deal with Social Security? Will it be there when I retire? Is it going to go away? Am I going to get what, what they project I'll get when I go check out my benefit on the website or when I get my little thing in the mail? What's the deal with Social Security? And I guess the, maybe the starting point is the answer may vary based on who's asking the question and how old, and how old you are because it's definitely changed over the years. Yeah, I I actually find Social Security as a whole kind of fascinating. You know, when it started in 1935 and, you know, we were going through that uh, depression and it was actually President Roosevelt who said, you know, we need to help people and too many people are in poverty and, and dying early and leaving their families and with, you know, no means of, of an income. So I love the fact that it actually started uh, way back when. Not a lot of changes have happened since then, other than in 1984, they started taxing Social Security, which is still, Bruce, one of the most misunderstood uh, tax concepts as to, you know, why am I getting taxed on this Social Security? But more so, ever since I've started in this business, and I don't know if the listeners feel the same way, They've talked about this Social Security running out of money. Wouldn't you agree, Bruce? Oh, absolutely. I've been getting this for years, and it goes all the way back. Um, I remember the debates. Uh, I think it was, uh, um, you know, I, I, was it Bush 1 and Al Gore? Uh, no. That they talked about, uh, Al Gore talked about putting Social Security in a locked box because throughout history, the government has on occasion invaded the Social, Social Security Trust Fund for other government expenditures, and, you know, sometimes they put it back, sometimes they didn't, and they're in as part of the problem. So it's also become a political issue in terms of uh, using that money for other things other than what it was intended. Yeah, and they're not ignoring it, meaning there was even President Bush, you mentioned him, he talked about possibly taking um, and, and kind of privatizing it and allowing us as worker bees to put some of it in the stock market or the bond market or, well, that got smashed. But so this has been talked about a long time for decades, but here we are. The report came out that, um, that, Hey, we're now actually the benefits will be depleted in 2034. And I almost feel like this is kind of one of those cry wolf things because we just constantly hear about it yet nobody's really doing anything about it. So you kind of wonder, well, is it really that big of a deal if no one's taking action? Or are we going to just get to the point where all of a sudden Social Security doesn't have any money? Now, let's clarify that. 
they have some of these reserves now that are assisting in paying everybody what they're paying. The idea was that all the workers would pay in and then support the ones that are on Social Security. Well, if they run out of these cash reserves, that just means that they'll be able to pay out 78% of the benefits um, that, they're, that they're now paying 100%. So it kind of is this pay-as-you-go system, but, you know, why in the world has Social Security funds depleted, you know, and it actually moved up one year uh, to 2034, but why is this happening? So I thought, Bruce, what we would do is just kind of lay the groundwork of what has happened recently, uh, you know, with Social Security and what the numbers look like at this point. Yeah, I think we, I, that's a good idea. So one of the things that we've always talked about is that three-legged stool, you know, one being the Social Security, one leg, the pension being the other leg, and then your savings. Well, when it comes to Social Security, um, COVID has, has really had kind of a small effect. Uh, maybe people think that maybe it would have a bigger one. But in the short term, the Social Security Administration, you know, they're looking at employment, earnings, they're looking at interest rates, they're looking at GDP, gross domestic product, all of which actually dropped in 2020. So the year of COVID, those things uh, dropped. And they expect, though, that the, that the returns of all these things will come back in 2023. The other fact that they looked at is that births were actually delayed. So um, it's sad also to say that there's been a lot of increases in death, uh, basically because of COVID, and they feel like, okay, well, those people are then not on Social Security anymore. So it actually kind of improved the system's uh, finances. Once again, sorry to say that, but those are the facts currently. Then, Bruce, we just had this increase because the word inflation is in uh, our our day-to-day -day work right now, and people are hearing about it. Things are costing more. So what the Social Security Administration did is they gave everybody a raise of 5.9% in 2022, which, of course, would, have, would affect, um, you know, these numbers that we're talking about and how long will Social Security last. So those are a couple things, Bruce. Yeah, and, you know, all these, in terms of how long the fund is going to last, that number has changed, you know, frequently through the years. But the thing, Peg, I guess that is a little disconcerting to me, because over the years when, when, when clients have said to me, I don't believe I'm going to get anything or it's not going to be there or it's not going to be what they say it's going to be, whenever I've heard all that stuff, I usually kind of, I don't want to say I'm dismissive, but I usually try to, uh, mitigate some of that fear and say, no, you know, it's don't worry, it's, something's going to be there. It's not going to be completely gone. And I still think that, but it's probably more disconcerting to me today than it's ever been because 20 years ago, if someone, you know, brought up this issue, we had, you know, whatever the date they were projecting back then, we had 35 or 40 years to fix the problem. But now 2034 is 12 years away. We've got 12 years if we're going to do anything to improve this, we got 12 years to do something. We're running out of time. Yeah, and, and they do say, Bruce, that, you know, when they look, they're doing all sorts of projections. You know, what could they do? 
But even when they look longer, like a 75-year projection um, that these trustees make each year, the pandemic and the subsequent short recession that we're having in 2020, they said that long-term, there's really not a big effect. Now, we talk a lot about the long-term with clients when it comes to investing, right? You know, as far as taking risk and over decades of time and when you average things out and uh, so it, it tends to relate back to Social Security, too. But I like what you said, Bruce, in that we're, real, we're talking to people day to day. And there is a real fear about Social Security running out. Now, I have to full disclosure here. The clients that we work with, could they, could they actually live without their Social Security, right? Because the people who come to us, they, they have accumulated some type of wealth. And when I answer those questions, I tell them that they don't have to fear, you know, um, about Social Security because they are primarily retired, although our clients at Wealth Enhancement Group are getting younger and younger and retiring earlier and earlier. But the ones that I'm talking about right now are ones that maybe wouldn't have to worry even if they lessened their Social Security. Now, do they want that to happen? Absolutely not, because what happens is, is the other assets they've accumulated over time, they want to leave a legacy, you know, to their children and their grandchildren. So um, one of the things that we, uh, we recognize is that uh, what you said, Bruce, something's got to give in some plan, uh, some Somebody's got to present a plan as to how are we going to give the security to the people. And, and this is a, a lot of people that are going to rely on that Social Security. And how do we give them the confidence that it isn't going away? Yeah. And, and now, again, you said earlier that, you know, the, the current projections that we will be short of money in 2034 are based on the idea that nothing is done to improve the system. And you also said, and uh, correctly, that it, it's recognized that this is an issue and something should be done. And don't take the that nothing has been done as meaning no one understands the problem. Um, and, and they haven't, you know, the reason for not taking action is not because they don't see the problem. The reason there's been no action is it's no one has had the strength or courage or political will to attack the issue. Because if you bring up changes to Social Security, a big percentage of the electorate is going to get angry and say, don't you right. touch your best to fight Social Security. So no one, it's a political issue, and no one has had the courage. There are things that can be done, and I think ultimately um, it will be politically beneficial to do some of those things. But as a country, we're just not there yet. And, Peg, the other thing, I, I, it occurs to me, listeners might be wondering, well, how did we get here? How did a system that seemed to work so well, you know, decades ago, what's the problem? Not, why is it running out of money? And, and there's a lot of variables. It, like anything else, it's complex and multifactorial. There's a lot of different things. But the biggest thing is, is as our society has aged, we have more and more and more people receiving benefits and less workers to, to contribute and fund the system. In 1935, I don't know exactly what the ratios were, but there were way more people working and way fewer people drawing benefits 
And as time goes on, that has shifted dramatically to the point that there's just not going to be enough money unless something is done. Well, and we're all living longer. So, you know, back in the right. 1930s, uh, people didn't live to 99 years old. Or, or the, the Social Security stats right now are 90. In the If we uh, do a financial plan and we ask if we just put in the Social Security estimate of how long people are going to live, I mean, we plug in 93 for a guy, a male, and we plug in like 96 for a female. So uh, that's different statistically. And then the other thing is, is, is right now we're kind of in this U.S. baby boom right now retiring, right? So there's a lot of people that are um, in that baby boomer era that are saying, okay, I'm now done working not necessarily that they're starting to collect right away, but they will be soon. And then the other thing is, is lower unemployment. You know, we talked about this big resignation and we had a show about this a couple of weeks ago. Lots of people are retiring in the, in the COVID pandemic and they're choosing to maybe do something else, but not to the degree where they may be paying into social security to the, to the degree that they used to be. So so here's just some food for thought based on some projections. So if you're averaging between 86000 and 132000 a year in annual income over your entire career, then you can expect Social Security to replace about 33% or 26% of that salary. So it's just some general numbers. So right off the bat, we're not trying to fund 100% of, of the lifestyle that people have uh, become accustomed to, or I want to be sensitive, or people who, um, you know, don't make anywhere near that type of income, um, they'll get a higher percentage, you know, of the lifestyle that they had, but it, it never, ever is 100%. So, you know, the more that you make above these limits of 86000 and 132000 um, you know, the smaller percentage that's replaced. Because if you're making 250000 or 350000 you know, the percentage just goes down. That's, that's math. But what I can tell you is a lot of these people that make that kind of money, they weren't actually always living off that number um, as we witnessed in our financial plans. So once again... In 2034, unless Congress uh, takes some kind of action to fix the system, um, we can expect that your Social Security benefits will be reduced. But then we've got some other countries out there like Japan, you know, and ones that have gone through this before us. So they're starting to look at, you know, what what could they do uh, to start to um, make it feel like it's going to last or was is in a stronger, uh, stronger position as far as giving confidence that their Social Security will still be there. Um, so let me kind of just clarify what, what you just said, because it was good stuff, and I want to make sure listeners understand. Um, on average, nationwide, people's retirement income is roughly 40% Social Security, but it's a higher percentage for lower compensated people. It's a smaller percentage for highly more highly compensated people. But here's, here's why this is important. I think here's where the rubber meets the road and why listeners should care about this. Let's say nothing is done, and in 2034, your benefit, whatever it is, and whatever percentage of your retirement income it is, 
it goes down by 22%. What if that actually happens? Well, again, for highly compensated people that probably have a lot of other uh, savings and investments, it's less impactful. But if you're someone that Social Security is 35 or 40% of your retirement income, and that 35 or 40% goes down by 22%, that can be devastating. So I guess the question, Peg, is in the first half of the show, that we got about five minutes left, what, what, what do people do with this information? What can they do now if government doesn't do anything to, to help fix this problem? Well, I, I'm sensitive to people who don't have a lot of time um, to make that up because part of uh, creating what we do is comprehensive financial plans for people. And we it, it, some, actually some uh, prospective clients who meet us for the first time they ask us to not include Social Security in their financial plan. They actually want to make sure that they're not relying on a government payment uh, to make uh, their you know, goals and, and their wishes and wants um, even stronger than relying on a, a government entity like the Social Security system. So we talk a lot on the show, Bruce, about being comprehensive planners, um, but uh, offsetting these numbers with a, uh, you know, so what does this mean is if you do comprehensive planning, then uh, y- you try to save some of your own money to compensate for a fixed income for the rest of your life. That's not new to any of the listeners. But I do feel for people, Bruce, because it's harder and harder as things cost more. And we're hearing about inflation a lot is how do you put that money away and how do you grow it for the future to make sure that you're secure? I believe they are going to come up with something, uh, whether they borrow money from a different area for some time or, um, you know, they come up with maybe taxation uh, higher than they're taxing today. Because one of the things they do now is if you make, you know, over $137,000, uh, they cap you from, you know, uh, putting more money into the Social Security system. So if you make 250000 you're going to only pay into the system up to 137000 of that wages. So one thing they could do, not that it would be uh, in favor of the people that are making more than that, that they would pay more. And they did that already, Bruce, with Medicare. You know, that Medicare tax of the 3.8% or whatever percentage it is, is unlimited for income. So that changes already. There is a precedent out there for that, Bruce. Yeah, we have seen it before. And again, I I think the fix is going to be a combination of things. It's not going to be any one thing. We've heard a variety of different ideas thrown out there, and everyone that has an idea always talks like that's the one thing we can do. I think it's probably a combination of several things. But I think, listeners and and Peg, I, I think the key takeaway to all this is we still don't know for sure what's going to happen because this has changed consistently throughout the years in terms of when this date gets here, and it's probably going to change again. But I think what it really emphasizes to me is all the things that we talk about all the time on this show and with our clients, um, saving and investing yourself to, to prepare and not, not be so dependent upon Social Security to understand where your, where your retirement income is going to come from, what sources do you have, 
to budget, to understand how much you can spend at retirement and not overspend so you don't run out of money before you run out of breath. And understanding budgeting and cash flow and, and having rainy day money and all, the, all those things. It's not new. It's things we talk about all the time. But if Social Security is vulnerable, all those things become even more important that you do them and you do them well because Social Security might not be as much as you originally thought it was going to be. Well, let's do this, Denny and Peg. I know we're almost up to break time, Denny. Let's uh, let's let, let's take our break. If we have any other thoughts on this after the break, we'll kind of tie a bow on this topic. But then we'll let listeners drive the second half of the show with questions, and they don't have to be about Social Security. They can be about any financial topic they want. Peg and I will do our best to address anything people want to talk about. All right, very good, Bruce and Peg. Uh, stand by. If you think of a financial question even midweek, here's a number for you: one eight 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 six advice. Or if it's easier, just email your question to your money at wealthenhancement.com. But in the meantime, right now you can text or call our studio line at six five one four six one nine two two six. Again, six five one four six one nine two two six for either your phone call. Or text. We'll be back on the other side with more of your money. If you have a financial question for Bruce and Peg, you can call or text our studio line right now, 651-461-9226. Again, 651-461-9226. Once again, here's Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor Peg Webb and Founder of Wealth Enhancement Group and Financial Advisor Bruce Helmer. Thank you, Danny Long, and uh, hopefully we'll uh, get some good questions on uh, text line or uh, phone line. But, Peg, um, I was reminded off air, um, a lot of people, listeners might have heard, one of the commercials uh, on break is actually us and, and, and my voice, and we did a commercial on Social Security. It made me think one of the other things we should probably talk about, or actually a couple things, is regardless of what's there in terms of benefits, if they really are reduced in 2034 or not, whatever your benefit is, there's still um, a methodology to determine how and when to take it. The, it people, have, there's this seemingly uh, uh, debate that's gone on forever. You can take it as early as age 62, or you can wait until 70. You've got this eight-year window, and should you take it, earlier, in which case you're going to get less money, but you get it for more years, or do you wait and take it later, which means you'll take it for less years, but you're going to get more money. So we can do that analysis and help people determine the appropriate withdrawal strategy for them. But also, you mentioned it in the first half of the show, that they're going to probably, almost almost certainly, they're going to pay income taxes on their Social Security benefit. And I think a lot of people that aren't drawing Social Security yet are shocked by that statement, didn't know that that's what happens when you actually receive your retirement benefits from Social Security. Yes, uh, there is taxation. Uh, And Uncle Sam in um, 1984 decided that we need to tax people on this Social Security so, but before I talk about that, Bruce, is, you know, this eight-year window, it is complex. And when we have people come and talk to us about it, uh, and if they're a couple and they're married, you know, they each have their own Social Security statements. And by the way, if you haven't signed up online with Social Security 
to watch your statement and to see if you're getting credits for the years that you're working and looking at your estimates to make sure they're accurate, you should uh, definitely uh, get online. So that's ssa.gov. Love their website. And if you scroll down a little bit on the front page of their website, there's actually a tool that you can put in to pretend like you're retiring in certain years and earn and have so many earnings and, you know, do some uh, DIY, do-it-yourself kind of uh, strategies on there just to see a, uh, your Social Security estimate. But the reason I brought that up, though, is because um, there are a lot of ways to take your Social Security and you can kind of um, uh, tailor it. And that's what we do to the clients that come and see us. Bruce, you're right in that uh, taxation is, is surprising to people because they feel like they shouldn't be taxed on something that they feel like they already uh, earned. And in some ways, people call it double taxation. But what's really happening is that the government um, is asking half of the money that's contributed to Social Security to come through the corporations and half of it to come from the employee. So the employee, yes, it is true that when they take that money out of our paycheck, we haven't paid tax on that. So that's taken out before they calculate what we're going to pay on taxes on our earnings. When it comes to the corporation's half, they get it as a business deduction. So tr really and truly, we haven't paid tax on that. And so uh, what they incorporated in back in the early 80s is this grid. So if you're married filing jointly, and if you have under 32000 of what they call provisional income, and why do they use that word provisional? Because they add things back, like interest on tax-free municipal bonds. So you have to add that back in. But if you're under 32000 then you are not subject um, to taxes on that. Now, there's there's few people that we work with that get their taxation um, on Social Security absolutely free, but then they have a medium category here with 32000 to 44000 and then your, half of your taxes are, are your Social Security is taxed at 50%. And then um, what I and then over 44000 is up to 85%. But then here's another misunderstanding: is if you're in that 85% category. That just means that your Social Security will go over to the taxable line and then will be um, calculated within your tax rate that you fall into. So it's not like you're paying 85% on your Social Security and you have nothing left. It just goes to the right column on your tax return and then they calculate what uh, what tax rate you're in and then you pay um, accordingly, Bruce. So if you're in a 12% bracket, let's say, and you, but you got to pay uh, on 85% of your Social Security and your benefits make the math easy, $1,000 a month, you're going to pay 12% on 850 of that $1,000. Correct. Correct. Mm -hmm. Okay. Anything else or should we uh, let listeners take us home? Let's let listeners take us home. All right, very good. We have callers and we have texters. Let's uh, grab some phone calls. First of all, I believe Jerry is first up here on the line. Jerry, you are on your money. Good morning. I'm wondering what your take is on the 
Minnesota reduction of the brackets for taxes. In the case of the top bracket, you get to $104,000 earlier, and the bottom bracket, you get to $11,000 earlier. How do you plan for the state asking for more without telling anybody? Hey, thanks uh, for listening, Jerry, and thanks for your question. Peg, are you familiar with what Jerry's talking about? I'm not. I, you know, I, I'm not. I was hoping you were. I was hoping you were because I'm not either. Um, the one thing I will say without knowing exactly where Jerry was going with that, um, you know, we live in, the, the, we have fans, I don't say this immodestly, we have fans all across the country. People might be listening live right now in different parts of the, of the country um, or they catch the podcast later in, in the week or whatever, but they're not all residents of Minnesota, which is where this show originates. And in the state of Minnesota, it's no secret that we have high state income taxes, high uh, relative to a lot of other states. And, and we talk about this a lot on the show. A lot of our clients will retire and establish residency in a different state, either with no state taxes or lower state taxes. So I know that's not much help to you, Jerry, probably whatever your issue was, but the, the, the base of Jerry's question seemed to be that Minnesota is onerous from a state income tax standpoint, um, and what can you do about it? Not much, I guess, if you live here, you can uh, you can hope to change policy with the, the vote you cast, I guess, in elections, uh, or you can move out of the state. Um, but otherwise, everybody, whatever state they're in, um, the tax laws are what they are where you live, and some states are, are better than others. Yeah, and right, I let's... think, Bruce, too, I think the concern there was that there was no communication about it. So, yeah. um, and, and I'm, uh, you know, I would think that, I, I would think that they would allow and make known that the, that there was some changes there. But you and I didn't hear about it. So, um, obviously, it's right. not like frontline news. <laughs> right, right. Okay, Danny, sorry. No, no, no. Let's uh, go back to the phones. I think Stan is uh, on the uh, phone waiting. Uh, Stan, thank you for waiting. What's your question for Bruce and Peg? Well, I was trying to get a, a savings I-bond, and it is really complicated to get it. But I was wondering, with inflation going up, do they know or when do they set that rate for the next time? Hey, thank you, Stan. Thanks for listening. We appreciate you, buddy, and thanks for the great question. And I always say this. Any question on bonds, boy, have you got the right person on the line today. Peg Webb is the resident expert at Wealth Enhancement Group on, on bonds. So, Peg, uh, Stan is talking about I-bonds or inflation-protected bonds. Talk a little bit about what they are, how they work, and, uh, and, and uh, how they set the rates. Yeah, we're getting a lot of questions on these I-bonds because they have been in the news as something that everybody should look into at this point. Uh, they are issued by the U.S. Treasury, and they have very strict limitations as to how many you can purchase. So if you go on the Treasury Department website and you look to purchase I-bonds, uh, we have a limit of $10,000 a year that we can purchase. And unless you get a refund on your income tax, uh, if, and you could add another 5,000 um, I-bond. So what these inflation bonds do is they follow the inflation number. 
And then the Treasury Department names uh, a rate of return based on, you know, inflation uh, for the past. And the reason they've gotten a lot of publicity is because the number was a little north of 7% for a six-month rate. And so at twice a year, they adjust that rate on the bonds. Now, there is some also some strict uh, holding periods that you need to hold those bonds so they're not 100% liquid. And then another question I'm getting is, well, how, do you, how does Wealth Enhancement Group participate in uh, inflation protection bonds if they're so limited. Well, there is a secondary market on these bonds, which our investment team has access to. And so uh, we do participate in, uh, through our portfolios that we manage, um, inflation protection bonds. And it looks like it was a good idea to have those because um, it's one of the asset classes that, are, that at this point in time is doing very well. You know, Peg, and the, because inflation has reared its ugly head, this has become they become I bonds have become in vogue again, and there's a lot of publicity. But I've always liked them. I, I mean, personally, in, in my own investments, I don't generally have a lot of bond exposure. But if I did, I would go the I bond route because you know I think one of the reasons to have bonds not only to diversify your portfolio or maybe generate income but to build an inflation hedge. That's one of the reasons I, I would want bonds all the time, whether inflation is a problem at that moment or not. So they, they've, they've kind of become back in favor because of inflation, but I always like them, don't you? I do too. Um, I, I would have to agree though with the caller in that it's cumbersome and kind of labor intensive to go buy those small amounts. If you do work with a financial advisor or a financial planner, you may want to ask about those uh, to your financial advisor or planner to see if you're participating. Once again, here's our number, both text and phone, 651-461-9226. In a few minutes, we'll give you a toll-free number. You can uh, call in if you think of something midweek to ask on the show. Here's a text message, Peg and Bruce. Do I need a professional to help me with my required minimum withdrawal, or can I do this myself? Oh, good question. Peg, RMDs. Yeah, one of the um, – you absolutely can do it yourself. Uh, there's a little bit of complexity if you have more than one IRA. So uh, the government allows us to have more than one. But what you have to be responsible for is that each one of those IRAs has its own required minimum distribution number. And then they also gave us the um, flexibility of then adding all those numbers together and then deciding which account, if you have more than one, that you want to take the entire amount out of. So what I've witnessed, Bruce, in the past is that when people have multiple IRAs, it does get very confusing. Normally, the custodian, depending on where you are holding the assets, will tell you at the end of the year or the beginning of the next what that required minimum distribution is. If you forget to do any of it, there is a 50% penalty on that required minimum distribution that you were supposed to take. Uh, so you have to be very, very careful. But you can do it yourself. 
um, I encourage uh, people to at least, you know, work with their tax provider and make sure that they are taking as much as they have to take. And while I have the audience, uh, the table that the required minimum distributions are calculated off of has changed slightly in 2022. So you may want to take a look as well at the new table because I think some people have it a lot of the uh, have a copy of the old table on their desks or that they're referring to, and there is a new table this year. You know, Peg, I just want to add really quickly, absolutely people can do that themselves. And again, your custodian will probably give you the number, but um, I'm having people, uh, cli uh, clients or prospective clients, ask me about it because they have IRAs someplace else and they haven't received that information yet. It may take longer to get that than you think. And part of the reason is that the calculation can't even be made before December 31st. In other words, your required minimum distribution for 2022 is based on the December 31st, 2021 value of your IRA or IRAs, plural. So they can't even begin to, to figure it out until they know the December 31st number, and it's only February, and they have a lot of people to do that calculation on. One of the advantages, and I'm not trying to be self-promotional, but I think one of the things our clients like is if they have all their IRAs under one roof, they don't have to look at all of them and worry about it. We will do the RMD calculation for them, tell them what the number is, and tell them which account to take it out of so they don't have to worry about all that stuff. And it's hard to it's hard to place a price tag on that value, but I know it has a value because our clients tell us they really appreciate the, that we do that and they don't have to worry about it. But uh, you can do it yourself, but I think it, uh, it might be worth your while to let somebody else worry about that for you. All right, let's see if we can't uh, get another call. I believe Mary is on the line. Uh, Mary, thank you for waiting. What is your question for Bruce and Peg? Good morning, and thank you for taking that call. Um, do If you inherit a Roth IRA, is the requirement still 10 years to redeem it? Hey, Mary, thanks for listening. Thanks for calling. Peg, you know, so Mary's asking about Roth IRA and the 10-year thing. Um, for other listeners uh, that maybe don't know what Mary knows, talk a little bit about the 10-year thing and, and the difference, uh, if there is one, between a traditional IRA and a Roth IRA. I like how we're calling it the 10-year thing. Well, the 10-year <laughs> thing uh, started term, yeah. <laughs> yeah, January 1st of 2020, before COVID. So I always say before COVID, January, the SECURE Act is what it was called. And that was the same time that the required minimum distribution age went from 70 and a half to 72. And to push out that age to 72, to make up for some of that, they want to gather taxes earlier from beneficiaries. So if you're a beneficiary and you're not one of the, um, you're not a spouse, then they have changed it to a 10-year rule. And what that means is you have 10 years to take that money out and pay taxes um, or liquidate it if it's a Roth. How is that different? Well, it used to be... Um, um, required minimum by the beneficiary. So even in the year following the year of the death, that beneficiary had to take some money out. Now you don't have to take any money out 
until you could take it all out the day before the 10th year. So when it comes to inherited Roth, Roths are ta accumulate tax-free, and they accumulate tax-free for the original owner, and they will also continue to be tax-free for the beneficiary, but they fall under this 10-year rule where you could leave them and grow them for you know, 10 years and then pull it out and not have um, any taxation on that. So, yes, they follow the new SECURE Act. The other thing I thought of that wasn't part of Mary's question, Peg, talk a little bit about, um, I, I think people are surprised to learn that if they inherit a Roth, that there's a, there is a required minimum distribution because on, on, on if, if I have a Roth and I'm still alive, there is no required minimum distribution like a regular IRA, but if I inherit that Roth from somebody else, there is. I think people are often confused by that. Yeah, and I think there was a lot of confusion um, before the SECURE Act because people thought, well, this is tax-free. Why should I have to take out money out of a, a Roth that's tax-free? Well, uh, the IRS was trying to stop kind of the Rockefeller effect where these Roths would just roll from generation to generation and just get bigger and bigger and, and, uh, and just snowball into these huge accounts. So that's why they had a required minimum distribution um, right after the death. But now with this new SECURE Act, you actually have this 10 years um, to leave it in, and then you have to pull it out. And there's no taxation at that point. Yeah, and that's the, that's the confusing part. People are like, why do I have to take it out if they're not going to get taxes anyway? Because usually the presumption is that for the mandate of the withdrawal is so the government can collect their taxes, but they don't. But I like what you said, the Rockefeller effect. They just don't want that tax-free money to pass generation to generation ad infinitum. Um, Denny, my friend, I know we're about out of time again. It goes so fast, uh, but uh, why don't you take us home? I will indeed, and we'll uh, try this again uh, next week. Uh, if you think of a financial question, and we mentioned this earlier for Bruce and Peg, uh, you can call it in or you can email it in. Let me give you a toll-free number, uh, and that is 1-888-6ADVICE. Again, if you think of something uh, midweek, a financial question, call and leave your question, 1-888-6ADVICE. And you can also email your question if that's easier. Just email your questions to your money at wealthenhancement.com. Again, email your questions. That goes to your money at wealthenhancement.com. But do call uh, if you think of a financial question. We'll have it on the show later. Here again is that toll free number, 1 888 6 Advice. We'll be back again next week with more of your money. <laughs> 